Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Half for Me, Half for You edition. It's Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. On today's show, in the lead up to the Oscars, every year we discuss various nominees we may have missed. Today we talk about Honeyland, an astonishing documentary. I mean, there is no way to do it justice with uh, a dozen adjectives, much less one. But really a remarkable documentary about a Macedonian beekeeper. And then Game Show Jeopardy has crowned its greatest of all time. We discuss a syndication mainstay in light of the failing health of its iconic host, Alex Trebek. And finally, the marvelous, I think, I hope, friend of the program, Gia Tolentino, has received a high-profile takedown this past week in the London Review of Books. It may not be news in and of itself. It probably isn't. But we discuss its possible significance with Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Joining me today is, uh, of course, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Uh, She is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times and uh, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Who you will know as the film critic of Slate. All right, let's uh, let's dive right in, shall we? Please. In a remote corner of Macedonia, Haditse Muratova, and apologies for the pronunciation, lives as close to a non-money existence as may be possible. Her tiny settlement is all but abandoned. Her house, such as it is, is a tiny pre-industrial hovel. Her only human companion is her aged, half-blind mother. But perhaps her deepest relationship is with the bees that she cultivates in the divots of ancient stone ruins and the crevices of the mountainside. She sells a little bit of it at the city market, which is about 12 miles away, but only enough really to buy some hair dye for her and her mother. And then all of a sudden, a family moves next door. And what began as a short video project by the two filmmakers who made this remarkable film ended up as a parable of overproduction and collapse. Among many other things, I would not want to reduce it to uh, any facile summary, Dana. This is an astonishing movie. I will just say right up front, it slotted in for me immediately with Parasite as the movie of the year. I loved it beyond loved it. What did you think? Yes, loved it beyond loved it. I'm really happy we're talking about it. Um, it came out quite a while ago now, so and I didn't get a chance to review it. So I'm really glad that it got this Oscar nomination, so that more people will see it and so that we get a chance to talk about it. But yeah, it was it was one of the it was one of two documentaries on my best of the year, and I would send everybody to it. I think it's streaming now, isn't it? Uh, yes, I saw yeah, it on Amazon. Rented on Amazon Prime. And one thing that strikes me reading reading up on it again and refreshing my memory is that it's the first feature film by these two directors, a directing team, Lubomir Stefanov and Tamara Katevska. I also apologize for my probably not good Macedonian pronunciation, but they've made a short before, but they have never made a feature film. And when you see this movie and the assurance that it has and the sort of quiet observational power that it has over this utterly unique and disappearing world, you you will not believe that it's two young filmmakers making their first feature. Yeah, Julia, uh, just one of those documentaries about which you feel compelled to ask, how? How did you just show up in this place at this time with a camera or cameras and through some sort of insane 
kismet. The whole thing develops into a narrative with a villain, a hero uh, set against large social forces that all of us are shot through with. Our lives are all shot through with. Kind of amazing, right? Yeah, the movie feels like a miracle because on the one hand, it has a plot that is, I mean, it basically feels like a short story where it's almost a parable, like the the set of facts that happened and the characters you meet and their the sort of density of the suggested relationships, even though they're only, you know, elliptically drawn feel it feels like a short story that you could close read in a literature class and yet it's a documentary and something about the way in which it is made and communicated makes you really trust these filmmakers like it does not feel manipulated these people do not seem self-conscious to that they do not feel like they're um being prodded to to play out the plots of the story which makes it just feel like a found marvel somehow and yet it's an incredible incidence of craft i mean just to cite one detail so the beekeeper wears this goldenrod shirt for most of the the warm seasons and so she's constantly trudging through and picking her way nimbly and confidently although not too fast through these sear landscapes and and you know green hill like it's just gorgeous like you you could you could pay a costume designer like a gajillion well I, they probably don't make that much you could <laughs> you could pay a costume designer scale and a little bit more to to direct that you know to choose that goldenrod and yet it seems just found there it's it's a marvel i, I i'm i'm rendered almost wordless by it yeah, I'm I'm very close to being uh, wordless too, but um, now let me vomit forth uh, uh, dozens and dozens of them anyway. I agree, Julia. They're just shots that are so perfectly, beautifully aestheticized that you might be led to distrust the movie. I mean, in addition to it, the unfolding of an almost Aristotelian plot narrative, right? it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has an obvious parable-like import, but there's no reason to distrust the, the movie that we're watching. They just happen to go there uh, these two filmmakers to make a short film about sustainability in this remote corner of the world. Uh, and they ended up spending three years shooting 400 hours of film and uh, witnessing something astonishing. The shot that I remember, the pair of shots so beautifully juxtaposed against one another. I mean, we are in a pre-modern landscape, right? There, There is a tiny little fragments of modernity are part of this landscape, but they are uh, overwhelmed by nature and basically pre-industrial forms of culture, but there's an amazing shot of a silhouetted hillside at dusk and a contrail cutting through the sky above it. You know, so you sense that there are just modernity is flying overhead, uh, probably planes going in, in and out of the capital on a fairly regular basis, a remarkable contrast. And then there's also a very key moment in the do- documentary that I don't want to give away, but it's just captured so beautifully by a daytime shot of one bee cannibalizing another. So um, I think without giving anything away, there are two intimate relationships at the heart of the movie that come under threat. The first is uh, this remarkable, I think she's 55-year-old woman who keeps the bees and her relationship with her, I think, late 70s mother who's very aged, seems to have lost one eye. And um, they're in this almost like Samuel Beckett-like codependency that's carping on the surface, but 
deeply beautiful underneath. And secondly, with the bees, and the title of our show is, you know, one half for you, one half for me. And central to the entire miniature ecosystem this woman has set up is the idea that if you don't take too much of their honey, they won't starve, they won't cannibalize one another, and the colony won't collapse. And suffice it to say, this is a movie about how both of those little ecosystems get very close to being destroyed. Right. I mean, something that I really love about this movie is how it's an environmental parable without ever being explicit about its environmentalism, right? I mean, there's there's an individual relationship that it chronicles, the relationship between Hatiste and the man who moves his family into her territory and starts poaching on her resources. But that relationship is never explicitly linked to the idea that the entire world is becoming a rapacious capitalist nightmare. And that yet that is completely present, even in the contrail shot that you mention and in the brief encounters that she has with people from the city and from the larger world. And all of that just comes out in real time, in observational time. So as you say, it's as if the story just emerges from the landscape. I have a question for you both because we all seem to love this movie so much and are just sending people there so unreservedly. One of the things that we read in prep was a negative or at least skeptical review from Richard Brody in The New Yorker. And his main objection to the movie had to do with the observational capacity of the two filmmakers and the fact that they don't make themselves known. And this, of course, is an old question in documentary filmmaking. Do you or do you not acknowledge the fact that there is a film team there watching everything happen? Some great documentarians like Frederick Wiseman don't. Other great ones like the Maisels brothers do. This movie does not. And I think part of the reason for that, which Brody doesn't seem to be aware of, I don't think, in his review, is that the filmmakers didn't know Turkish. They didn't know the language that Hatice and her mother and the neighbors were all speaking together. And so for much of the time that they were sleeping in tents in the yard of this woman and spending several days out of every week for three years essentially living with her and watching her, they didn't know what was happening and had to depend later on on translators to watch the story emerging. So it was more of a visual narrative for them before it was ever a verbal narrative at all. Which answers to some degree the question, why did they not intervene, ask questions, um, conduct interviews, etc. But I wonder how you two felt about that lack of direct address to the camera, lack of acknowledgement of the filmmaker's presence. I liked it. I mean, I, you know, I, I did find myself wanting to read a lot afterwards about who are these people and how did they come to be there? And is there really a place that feels so rural and remote that there's actually no other inhabitants of the village only 12 miles from the capital and you know i trusted them journalistically but it's so picturesquely remote like i wondered if there were you know it just seems like such a carefully edited movie and i wondered uh, what it would be like to be in that environs and is there you know some tacky strip mall a mile away that that you don't see because of the way that they're putting it together like i wondered about it i certainly wondered about its craft and construction as i watched it but I wouldn't have wanted those in it. I mean, there there is a way in which it's um, the way that it's constructed and the way it almost feels like a found object, a found parable, a found story. There is almost a like primitivism or something. The way in which the neighboring family is portrayed is both empathetic. They're the villains, but they're also comprehensible and the children develop their characters. Just the amount of like, kid accidents that happen, like kids toppling into logs and scuffling and wailing and getting stung by bees. I just loved all the kid mishaps in the movie and the capturing of kid mishaps. It makes you realize that that is a huge 
facet of life with children under six that's seldom captured on screen. Because it's presented as like, here's this story, you know, we, we, put a, we put a webcam in the village and we weren't there at all. And here's what unfolded. I felt I missed that more in the portrayal of the neighbors where they are, they seem a bit more like an instrument, even though they seem human at the same time. But the, but the portrayal of, of the beekeeper, whose name I will not attempt to pronounce, and her mother, you just feel like you're so deep inside that relationship. I did not want a lot of like, well, after film school, we decided <laughs> to go to the ngingingang, you know, or right. whatever. Yeah, they had, they took something like 400 hours, right? Wasn't that the ratio? They had 400 yes. hours of footage, and the movie is only 87 minutes long. Yeah, so obviously short. there was shaping and leaving out of things in order to create this very intimate atmosphere that, that the movie shows us. It wouldn't have changed my experience of the film to find out that there was a tacky strip mall a mile from where they were filming because I trusted that the world they were showing was that woman's world. Yeah, I mean, I for my part, I think the Brody criticism is just totally off. I mean, it... I, I, it would take a like major multi-part 60 minutes expose for me to regard this movie as somehow essentially dishonest. I mean, I doubt it's committing even that sin of omission. I doubt there's a strip mall a mile away. There's no evidence of it in the landscape we get. You know, I mean, I just find that completely spurious. I, I took away a message from this movie that I will have to confess I wrote down because I as it occurred to me, I, I felt it very powerfully from the movie and I didn't want to get it wrong. So for apologies for reading from my own prose. But what came home to me in this movie was the horrible truth that we human beings are both. We're both creatures who through sheer ingenuity and resilience can draw livelihoods from semi-desert landscapes. And we're the creatures who can take a fecund one and drive it to depletion and ruin. I mean, I've never watched a movie where I felt so proud to be part of this one species and so ashamed at the same time. And to have in, as you say, Dana, in under 90 minutes to have portrayed that conflict, right, with a degree of just human empathy was just astonishing. This movie I read has grossed worldwide less than a million dollars or something crazy, or maybe it's less than a million in the US. Either way, I have never pounded the table harder. I mean, to me, this is, along with Parasite, the movie of the year. It's so timely. It's so beautiful. It deserves to be universally uh, seen, not just widely seen. I cannot emphasize that enough. All right. Well, we're sending people with a lot of, of gushing and analysis, but but maybe let's each share a, a particular detail that would send people to it. My favorite moment in the film or a moment that I love is when, I mean, you you see her in this landscape it feels like it could be any time in the last, I don't know, 200 years. I'm trying to think about like dying technologies. But anyway, feels timeless. And then the first hint of real industry you see as she's squatting by what what you just see something ramrod straight. And you're like, that. I think that's a, a train rail. And then suddenly she is, in fact, like in transit. And there's a punk with a mohawk. And suddenly there's this encounter with the modern and i just love the scene where she is in the marketplace selling her wares and haggling and acquiring bananas and you know her although this movie is a critique of the rapacity of capitalism and and um thoughtless use of resources there's also this kind of amazing scene about the you know the benefits of the marketplace like it's it's a subtle and nuanced movie um even as it's making its point 
and I loved that first encounter, with, which just comes as like a shock to the system and the visual language of the movie. Yeah, it's true. It's not a movie, even from the beginning, that idealizes the pastoral. You know, even though it's about a, a beautiful pastoral landscape and a person who makes their living off of this relationship with the wild, um, th- the modern is there from from the beginning as well. And the movie is really kind of wise about that. I guess if I had to pick a favorite moment, I really love a scene later on in the movie where she takes one of the kids, I think it's the oldest boy from the family who's moved in. And this family, not to give any spoilers, has just created a complete nightmare in the life of this woman, our protagonist, Hatiz Day. And yet she befriends the children and really gets along with the children well. She herself has never married or had children. And she takes the oldest boy, or maybe he's not the oldest, but one of the boys of the family, he's maybe 10 or 11, up with her on an expedition to, to collect the wild honey. And there's a scene of them at night just talking about the work that's involved and her kind of transmitting this knowledge, this ancient knowledge of honey collection to him. And that scene, I thought, or that whole sequence, really, a series of scenes is quite incredible. Uh, there's so I mean I love both of those moments uh, ex- exactly right Julia the movie doesn't demonize you know exchange for money at all and that leads to my moment which is that you know she likes to purchase what looks like a kind of cheap little box of Clairol hair dye after she's able to sell some of her supposedly quite delicious honey I mean there's plenty of evidence that this is in- like just an, like a notably delicious. Uh, honey that she's brought to market she returns with this hair dye and they're just these sacramental moments i think at least twice in the movie of you know popping open the box and she dyes her hair in order to keep it i I suppose from being fully gray and she dyes at one moment her you know quite elderly mother's hair as well and there's just this sense that she's not being fetishized by the movie as a creature outside of time you know or our time that she's got a petty vanity that she's aware of as a petty vanity i mean it doesn't it doesn't other her as this kind of holy figure remote from all of the shallowness that you know what i mean it's like it's like the for the cosmopolitan first world audience it's very easy to turn this woman into a you know a kind of saint and in, I just love the ways in which, you know, no, she's just she's just she's part of the species, too. She has this wonderful sense of humor, sense of irony, a sense of, you know, herself uh, is capable of ironizing herself and has this little vanity that she treats herself to. And it's just those moments are so incredibly moving. I mean, I just can't emphasize it enough. I will be so disappointed in you know, the Gabfest diaspora, if we can't nudge this thing over $1 million over the next six months, like, and the only way to do that is for me to tell you, listener, to go see it one way or another, and then tell five people to go see it, which is what I'm going to continue doing. Okay, it's Honeyland. We loved it. Please check it out. And one thing we should note about this is one of our Oscar contenders is that it was actually nominated twice. It is both Macedonia's uh, selection for Best International Film and it's one of the Best Documentary nominees. So that's pretty impressive for two first-time directors. An interesting and not very frequent occurrence uh, between this movie and Parasite to have two of the international features also nominated. And The um, question is, does that increase around. their chances or decrease their <sighs> chances by splitting the vote? I suppose... This this movie's got enough of a purer gold in it. It would be hard to judge it by its Oscar haul. All right, before we go any further, this is usually where we talk business. Dana, what do we have? 
Not much this week, Steve. Just really to say that our Slate Plus segment, which will be hosted by Julia, as always, is going to be about the Oscars since the nominations came out last week and Julia wasn't around to discuss them. And she's now our resident entertainment journalist editor. We are going to talk about Oscar nominations and our own disappointments and hopes for the ceremony in Slate Plus today. So if you're interested in signing up for Slate Plus and supporting our show and all the work we do, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and sign up today. What's next? Well, for the Jeopardy Greatest of All Time or GOAT tournament, the show assembled its three greatest champions, James Holtzauer, Ken Jennings, and Brad Rutter, and pitted them directly against one another. Jeopardy was one of the original crop of iconic game shows whose heyday was in the 60s and 70s. Like those, it was good-natured hokum meant to fill time mostly in the afternoon. But having arisen alongside the childhoods of the boomers, of course, it became an object of nostalgic veneration. And so it made its return in 1984 with a new host, Alex Trebek. Uh, who has been called the human embodiment of the show. He is certainly that. Some magic synergy was discovered here. The format was pretty tired, and Trebek was a semi-failed game show host. I mean, the kind of guy who gets recycled through a bunch of, at that point, a bunch of TV game shows. I think Will Ferrell's impersonation of him on SNL gets at what's so special about both Trebek and the format together. He has this unflappable poker face, but with a kind of ironic, I smirk is too strong, twinkle is maybe too mild, that may or may not be kindled by contempt, but he remains Canadian and likable throughout. I should say one occasion for talking about the show is not only the crowning of its greatest champion of all time, but uh, Alex Trebek has stage four pancreatic cancer and is certainly looking at retirement over the next year or so. Uh, Before we go any further, let's listen to a clip. A congenial game bird under glass given as a gift Ken. What is a pleasant pheasant present? Right. (laughs) Rhyme time 600. A flexible and enormous customer. Ken. What is a pliant giant client? Yes. Rhyme time for a thousand. In Papayetti and the rest of the aisle, a signed agreement to quit spray painting. James. What is a Tahiti graffiti treaty? Yes. Julia, let me start with you. This is uh, part of the, pardon the expression, collective mind share of our culture. Jeopardy, surely it's something that you watched. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love Jeopardy. And I'm I'm so curious to hear Dana's relationship with Jeopardy as someone who hates games. I wonder how that extends to game shows. But I've always loved it. I haven't watched it in years. And then my husband and I tuned in for the greatest of all time. There was something about the conceit of getting the three winningest by various metrics players to play against each other uh, in a contest mediated by Trebek at this moment where I think we've all come to appreciate that Trebek-hosted Jeopardies are a scarce resource, uh, and there will not, in fact, be an infinite spigot of them forever, as it has seemed literally for all the decades I've been alive, seemingly, um, that made it feel really poignant, even as it was just a very high-powered version of the show, um, and made it a little bit of a, like, internet sensation. Like, it was one of those collective viewing experiences for the four nights that it took for a winner to be declared. And I don't know, it, I, I, I've i loved the show for years in a sort of mildly positive, neutral, fond regard for a familiar object way, but it was really interesting to watch this high-powered version of it and think about what exactly it is that makes it appealing and successful as a trivia show and what I will miss about Trebek presiding over it. Dana, what about you? Surely you 
grew up with this as I did? Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have basically two two chapters to mention in my history with Jeopardy. One is that, yes, despite being game allergic in every way, I did grow up loving Jeopardy. And that is largely because of my father, who's an incredible trivia head. He has exactly that kind of brain to this day. He can name all the presidents, all the vice presidents. He has an incredible amount of Oscar knowledge, which I forget about the Oscars the minute they happen, and I can't wait to forget about them. Whereas my dad can tell you, you know, records from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and in fact, he puts himself to sleep at night sometimes going going over his various trivia knowledge fields in his head. And he auditioned for Jeopardy once. I think it was probably in the 90s. I don't know exactly when it would have been. I think maybe I was in college. But there was some sort of audition in town where you could go and and try your luck and see if you beat out enough people to do a future show. He ended up not getting on, I'm sure, because he was surrounded by you know younger people who had better buzzing techniques. But he continues to be a, a trivia king. And so I have affectionate memories of watching with him and you know trying to shout out the answers before he did and usually not beating him. And and just the, the comfortingness of that show, always looking the same, always feeling the same, even for the greatest of all time tournament. They slightly modernized the set, but it's still just all about blue squares and, you know, minimal buzzing <laughs> and mis- minimal bells and really smart questions and answers that make you feel smart when you can, on rare occasions, uh, beat one of the contestants. And my other chapter of Jeopardy! experience is just that I was a very new writer at Slate in the summer of 2004. I was writing a a column on TV and pop culture, not on movies at all, when Ken Jennings had his extraordinary run on the 20th season of the show, where essentially he just started to win so much that he never left and stayed for the end till the end of the season, um, setting all kinds of records in the process. If I say what record they are, I'm going to be wrong because I don't know my Jeopardy trivia enough. But he was certainly a, a, a phenomenon in the history of the game. And uh, and I covered that. I mean, a, f- a few times, essentially Ken Jennings, who I remember dubbing Ken Jen and feeling proud of inventing that during the era of Brad and Jen, uh, just turned the game around and got people interested in it for the first time in a couple of decades and and really revivified it. I know since then he's become a social media presence that some consider somewhat obnoxious, but I have a lot of affection for Ken Jennings because I associate him with my early days at Slate and just covering his his fun run. So um, this is the moment that the spoiler kicks in. I was rooting for Ken, even though he was kind of the overdog, just because it's really fun to watch him play. I mean, when he gets in the zone, he is just an insanely good trivia player. And sure enough, he uh, he took it all in a very suspenseful final game. So even if you do know that going in, it's still worth watching the greatest of all time tournament. Yeah, I mean, I just have I have so much affection for the format, the show, the host. Uh, watched it on and off for at least uh, 15 years or so, but accompanied me along with Law and Order through grad school parts of grad school and uh, but hadn't caught up with it in a long time and following along of course you know somewhat heartbroken by the health struggles of its host uh, Trebek who really is heroically showing up and continuing to do the job um it I have a, a question for both of you which is you know having not watched it in a long time I I have this perhaps false memory of the clues acting as as mnemonic triggers like they're obviously very carefully crafted to be not too easy nor too hard right it's not an alienating show in which you watch it in these superhumans you know with computer like brains you know but rapid fire answering questions that you have no clue how to answer they're sort of designed as the format of the show is like designed to give you a little bit of a memory trigger so even if you don't have overly specific knowledge of the thing you might be able to cough it up or whatever see play along you don't feel so stupid but also you don't feel snooty or 
or more smart than the than the contestants or the show. It was pitched somehow perfectly until the greatest of all time. And then I was like, I'm a fucking moron. I can't. I don't know any of this. These guys are just flying through it. They're they're in the best sense of the word. I mean, they're just absolute machines. Um, what 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 did, what did you guys think? Uh, yeah, I think I think the questions were harder for this. And my favorite moment, actually, of the whole thing was if you watch the very first show when it's less clear what the dynamic is and who's on top and who's having a a weaker day, you see that none of them gets a question wrong for the whole first round. Like, literally nobody answers badly all the way through the first round. And the questions are arcane. I think they're mostly pitched at or above the more difficult level of Jeopardy questions. You know, I feel like in a normal Jeopardy, when I'm along, it makes you feel smart because you're like, I know a bunch of these. And in this one, I was like, I, my mind is a wasteland. I know nothing. <laughs> I don't know anything. I will never know anything. Um, but it was it was pleasurable for this amount of time. Yeah. So I, I had the same response of feeling slightly overwhelmed by the knowledge level expected. Dana, did you or are Steve and I crazy? I guess it depended. I mean, when, once it got to the level of the daily doubles, they were pretty hard. But I actually thought that it was fairly playable. I mean, in, in the in the categories that I knew anything about, which is always how I was with Jeopardy. My dad was the one who had this broad knowledge across different fields. And I was the person who, you know, if it was like a literary question or historical, I might do okay. But as soon as sports came up, for example, I was completely lost at sea. I felt some pride in the final rounds when I think there was one question that none of them knew and Trebek had to tell them what the answer was. But I knew it and I wish I could remember now so that I could show it off for you guys. But that fact has already left my brain. All right. Well, Steve and I can just feel devastated. We, we're the ones who like games and we're the ones who, whose brains were obliterated by this. But the two questions that I found most galling, one of them was when there was actually a question about Oscar winners. One of the final Jeopardy questions was about foreign born directors who had twice won Best Director without winning Best Picture uh, in the year since 2000. I was like, oh, my God, my actual area of knowledge. I still failed to get it correct, but I also felt there a couple of the contestants didn't even try at an answer, I think, because they had done better math than I had about the nature of their winnings and the likelihood of of succeeding. But I was like, what? These people know everything, but they can't be bothered to, like, keep their Oscar information straight? Like, this is bullshit. This is, like, the one field of knowledge that they don't respect enough to know, uh, which I think was probably a misreading of the actual strategic dynamics. But I, I took – I was affronted by it. Um and then did you guys get the final, final Jeopardy question correct? No, I would, and I would never have gotten it. It was a fantastic question. I think we should not give away what it was because it was really suspenseful during the little doo-doo-doo-doo yeah. okay. buildup whether okay. or not any of them would get it. Did you know it? I had, no, I had like a very firm and completely incorrect guess that I was extremely confident of. And, uh, and I was just wrong, wrong as hell. That was right in my wheelhouse, too, a literary question, and and I had no idea. One last thing I wanted to mention about the Greatest of All Time tournament that is very touching is just the affection, both among the three players who are playing against each other for very high stakes, the winner is going to take a million dollars home, but who seem genuinely impressed with each other's trivia knowledge, who are always patting each other on the shoulder when they get something right. They lift up the champion and, you know, like hold him up with his trophy at the end, and they all hug Alex Trebek. There's just a real sense of camaraderie and sweetness so that if, if this was the last Jeopardy episode you ever watched, you would feel you had said a complete goodbye to the show. Can we just talk, though, briefly about Brad the Weak Link? Like, it was not a really a true three-legged stool of a competition no. for some reason, despite them all having equally, although differentiatedly impressive 
Jeopardy records. But Brad really came in. Brad was the one I knew least, I think, because his Jeopardy triumphs were oldest and then on these like specialized contests that I hadn't watched. And it was just so interesting. He really couldn't keep up, even though he was the one who was undefeated by any champion. He was the one who had only been defeated by Watson, I think, going into it. I did wish, I was both sort of rooting for him because he was the underdog from round one and also, you know, wish that he had played better because then it would have gone on longer. Like it could have gone to seven nights and that would have been so fun. Um, but they were all very kind and gracious about him kind of uh, doofing it up out there. <laughs> I mean, I feel like he represented all of us. He was like the guy struggling to keep up who often had the number zero on his board. And you need to have that guy to identify with along with these two superstars because James Holzauer, the other one besides Ken Jennings, is a professional gambler in his daily life. That's his actual job, professional gambler, which I don't understand the economics of at all. But obviously he had very smart betting strategies and, you know, a lot of his game was based on those technical details of, you know, hopping from category to category at the right moment, stuff that I don't really understand. Whereas Ken Jennings just it goes straight down the line. I just know everything, <laughs> right? I mean, that's his that's his playing strategy, know everything. All right. Well, it's uh, I think you can catch it. You can catch it on Hulu. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's uh, it's really fun. And there's a, a bittersweet elegy to it uh, as well because of Trebek. But uh, anyway, check it out and uh, talk to us about it via email or on Twitter. All right. Moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. For our final segment, we're joined by Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, you have called the New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino a classical essayist along the lines of Montaigne, threading her way on the page toward an understanding of what she thinks and feels about life, the world, and herself. That is a beautiful and apt description, I think. And I want to say also, like we, I think, all really admire Gia Tolentino. We don't mean to you know, bring any extra attention to this takedown review of hers. But it, the segment was provoked, I believe, by two things. First, the death of Elizabeth Wurzel, the writer whose book Prozac Nation is said to have set off the boom in confessional memoirs written most often, I think, in this genre, at least by very young women. And then second, by, as I said, there was this extended, essentially, takedown of her book Trick Mirror in the London Review. And we began to think in some sense about how these two writers might be linked. They might form a kind of bookend in some sense. Uh, Laura, is there a way in which Tolentino inherits a world that Wurzel created in which personal lives become public domain, though she inherits it in the age of social media and quite self-consciously so? Well, yes and no. I mean, you could say that like Elizabeth Wurzel, who was sort of notorious for oversharing, um, we know a lot about Gia Tolentino through things that are sort of outside of her work, like her Instagram feed or her Twitter, you know, her various social media presences. Um, I think what's kind of piquant about this particular negative review and the the sort of the response that it's gotten is that if there was a criticism of Elizabeth Wurzel, it was that she was just such a mess. And that was the real subject of all of her work was what what a mess she was. And 
that was often the value that people found in her work was that they felt like they like she was smart and talented and, and successful and a good writer and even though she had all of these problems and kind of hated herself and was depressed and then was addicted to all of these substances nevertheless you know she found a place in the world and they felt validated by that. Like I've definitely heard people say that. But the thing with Gia Tolentino is her social media presence gives the impression that her life is just all together, you know, that it's fun. She has a lot of friends. She has a great, big, adorable dog. She's extremely photogenic. She's in a, an apparently good relationship. She seems happy. I mean, she's sort of the opposite of Elizabeth Wurzel. And yet that seems to be one of the things that this negative review is so fixated on is, is the fact that Gia Tolentino is claiming this status of sort of oppression or suffering that she hasn't really earned because she's too happy. Mm. Right. So that's right. Where Liz Wurzel was kind of a performative fuck up in a way, Tolentino has this super idealized life. Nonetheless, her, you know, to quote from her introduction, he says, she says, these essays are about the spheres of public imagination that have shaped my understanding of myself. She doesn't, it's not as though she doesn't, explore as honestly as she can an ambivalence about commodification and self-commodification that she's a part of. Like she's trying to understand this economy of uh, image making that she's part of. And it's not as though being successful within it should deprive you of the right of being critical of it. But that seems to me to be the premise of this review. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should give this review undue credence. And it's actually a testament to how deft Gian Tolentino is at navigating the internet and and the public communication of self that she just like amiably tweeted like, well, you wouldn't have written a first book if you don't get a scathing critique. And it's it's bracing and interesting to read one. And, you know, congrats to the Dale Peck of my book. (laughs) Like, you know, she just had a very nice, like effervescent, effortless um, like, of course, great. Any work needs its piece like this and uh, more power too, yeah. Um, but it was just interesting, I think, to think about how we have, you know, perceived the young magnetic female dynamo writers who are, you know, capturing the moment in some way, who are a voice of a generation, as Lena Dunham would have put it. Um, and, it, and in some ways, the exact thing that the London Review of Books essay seems to pinpoint, which is why does this seer figure, why does this person think she can tell us what's wrong with the world if her life is so great, um, is I think part of what's really interesting about Gia Tolentino as a figure is that if one of the things that we are all trying to figure out in a very social media mediated perception of the world is whether the people who seem to have it all really have it all and what's going on inside that performance of self, you know, having someone who's very adept at performing a self that seems enviable in various fashions, um, although certainly not all, be wrestling with this exact same set of conundrums and, and, and wrestling with them smartly and interestingly, like that feels appropriate to, you know, young smart female essayist 2019. Um, it, it feels of a piece with the moment that we're living in, in a way that that makes the London Review of Books essay seem gripey. And, and 
honestly just not as acute in its use of language or thinking as Tolentino's work, which really takes the wind out of its sails. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, it's a kind of a foggily argued and worded piece uh, with these moments of sort of nasty personal sniping here and there that that suggest that there's some kind of pettiness involved in a way that you just think that the writer who's sort of complaining that there's too much that's personal in in Tolentino's writing, she, you would think that she would kind of not want to have these sort of weirdly bitter jabs at Tolentino for having a lot of friends or getting a lot of invitations to weddings. I mean, it just seems so, so petty. Um, but I do think that a lot of the responses to successful young female essayists and memoirists, which I, I think Tolentino goes back and forth between those two genres. I, the response is so often really petty, and some of it is just professional rivalry. I mean, in this case, we have someone who's written about some of the same subjects, but just for less prominent publications. And um, and then some of it is just this weird, this kind of inherent neuroses of femininity where you're supposed to try to present this perfected facade, but then as soon as you do, everyone wants to pick it apart. And if, if on the other hand, you make a big show of how you can't present a perfected facade, then everybody claims that you just want attention and, and that you're, you know, a borderline personality. And, you know, I mean, it, it, you really kind of can't win. There's actually an essay in Tolentino's book in Trick Mirror called Always Be Optimizing that it's about that is about precisely this. I mean, that's sort of about yeah. female self-presentation in the era of the internet and how even as we supposedly move away from older models of extremely narrowly defined beauty standards, et cetera, that the idea that the woman's job is to always be perfecting herself remains. And that, I think, is maybe what inspired this connection between Wurzel and Tolentino that made us want to do this somewhat sprawling segment. I mean, we're not really talking directly about the book. We're not really only talking about the fact that it got one negative review. But to me, the interesting thing is this continuity of experience from the sort of pre-internet or early internet age that someone like Elizabeth Wurzel is coming from, at least when her first big book, Prozac Nation, came out. And the age we're in now, when obviously self-presentation means something completely different because of us being always online. But at the same time, it seems that we've made no progress in the way that we think about young women who write about themselves and present themselves to the world. And that there's still, you know, as you say, Laura, this this very petty sort of there can be only one kind of logic, as if there's kind of this scarcity of resources that is, you know, attention to female writing and that we have to scrap over who is getting it and why. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because we have had a rise of sort of popular, and I think Lauren Euler does make a good point when she talks about the sort of glib feminism that has come up in a lot of writing that either originates or is about the internet. You know, we have that, and yet we also have this weird sort of Instagram world where people are both posting, you know, images of their lives that, you know, sharing them, and then also, but more importantly, obsessing about the images of other people's lives and developing like elaborate feelings and and complexes about them. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, in the way that it hasn't changed much over the years, it reminds me a lot of 
how people used to talk about Martha Stewart when she first started to have her magazine and her show and how there was, you know, she seemed so perfect. And so there was this obsession with sort of dismantling that persona, which is sort of understandable, but at the same time, as neurotic in its own way as trying to present this perfect facade. Um, as someone who made a Martha Stewart brownie recipe this weekend and found that the minimum baking time of 40 minutes was way too long and left me with overdried brownies, I can tell you that I still found it slightly satisfying to find an imperfection in Martha Stewart, although it's possible that my <laughs> oven was just too hot. Although I also made cornbread and the oven did not act too hot. I mean, but I do think it's depressing and interesting how we still scrutinize young women who want to say something about the world and the way it is leaning to varying degrees on their own personal experience. And I don't I don't think we offer the same scrutiny to men. I mean, I've been trying to think of the other books uh, trying to explain the world and its path by men. And and Laura, you'll have a better answer to this than I will. But in some ways, I, 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 rather than thinking of a bunch of men who'd skated through uncritiqued, I wasn't sure I could find relevant books by men from recent moments. There's sort of the, you know, explain it all, Yuval Harari, there's the reported uninhabitable earth, there's the, you know, Ben Lerner wrestling with masculinity in the Topeka school. Like I, I couldn't think of a kind of essay memoir hybrid figure who is male. What? Who am I forgetting? Well, there are definitely male memoirs who are not really essayists like Austin Burroughs and James Fry, who just is a whole other uh, <laughs> other uh, can of worms. But they tend to be focused on, you know, particular crises. I mean, David Sedaris is a is a memoirist, basically, but he's being funny most of the time. I mean, there is this idea that male essayists focus outward and female essayists focus more inward, although obviously that's not, you know, a hard and fast rule. But, you know, there is this way, when you were talking about there can only be one, there is this way that there is this completely um, unnecessary jockeying for who gets to be the person who talks about what it's like to cope with Instagram or Twitter or whatever as a young woman. And so, you know, if if somebody has a perch at the New Yorker, then you need to sort of knock them off of that perch or explain how how they completely sold out to have that that gig and that that they aren't the authentic item and that somebody else is. I mean, it's it was similar to the whole Lena Dunham thing where every you know, she's like the voice, a voice of a generation, but then you everyone needs to sort of pick apart everything about her to keep her from holding on to that title or 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 owning it in some way. I mean, it, this did the response or the sort of weird, like there was a lot of Twitter gratification about this pan. And it had the tone that reminded me of um, some of the early reception to David Foster Wallace when Infinite Jest was published, and it was supposed to be the, you know, this generational defining novel. And there was a lot of mistrust among the young people I knew at that time who felt that they were being marketed to by publishers and who were trying to push off this thing that might not be genuine. And in a way, 
Um, this reminded me of this, except it's not the publisher who's being blamed for it. It's the writer herself, because she is the one who is now in this contemporary media landscape responsible for mounting this persona for the public to, to consume, rather than some kind of big faceless apparatus doing it for her. Julia, the name that jumped to mind for me when you asked about what men have been associated with the memoir genre was, of course, Carl Ove Knausgaard, who I, I haven't read any of the volumes of his multiple volume autobiography. But whenever people talk about it, I just laugh at the mere idea that a woman could write a long multiple volume autobiography of her life called the same title as Hitler's memoir and that it would somehow become this beloved international bestseller. Yeah, I mean, that's funny. One thing that strikes me, even hearing the names David Sedaris and Burroughs, it's like, it's almost more the other way that, that the male writers in this vein have turned inward or light. Uh, and it's the women who are trying to combine the exploration of their personal experience with examination of kind of political and social structures, which which maybe makes sense. Maybe there's more freedom for people to explore in opposite than expected directions. Um, Laura, before we go, there was something I wanted to to ask you about, which was in the enlightening emails we exchanged before the segment going over what it might be about. You quoted the psychologist Robert Stoller, who once said, guilt is not a punishment for doing the wrong thing, but the price we pay to go on doing it. What uh, what made that apposite here? Well, I think that Euler seems to be saying that's the case with um, Tolentino, that she writes about being ambivalent about commodifying herself, both you know, presenting this image of herself um, on social media, and then also using her, you know, supposedly golden life as material for her work. And the implication is that, well, if you, you know, if you feel like that's wrong, in the same way that you worry that all the stuff that you're ordering from Amazon is, you know, damaging the environment in either its manufacturer or its shipping or whatever, whatever it is that, that, you know, makes you feel bad about ordering a lot of crap from Amazon, but you do it anyway. Like, what does it really mean to say that you feel ambivalent? Are you just sort of posing as a person of conscience um, in order to make yourself feel okay about continuing to do what you want to do? The crazy thing about this complaint is that, you know, Euler has written almost very similar pieces and very similar themes, like how social media makes her feel terrible. And then sometime, presumably before this LRB piece went up, she deleted all of her social media accounts. So maybe she's trying to show that she's better than Tolentino because now she's refusing to be on social media. You know, like how can you criticize someone for doing something that you are actually doing yourself? I mean, there are pieces that she's written that are just identical to um, the I and Internet essay that that Tolentino wrote. Not identical, but, you know, very similar in theme and treatment of the sort of um, discomfort that social media gives us. And um, so I guess the only way to prove that she actually, you know, the only way to put her money where her mouth was, was to just delete all of her social media accounts. Maybe that's what she thinks Tolentino should do. I don't know. Yeah, I guess there's the critique that no answers are being proposed. But I guess it would seem to me that 
part of the essence of writing a personal essay is that you you can't answer the questions that you're grappling with. You can only grapple with them from your own subject position and see how that subject position is subjugated to the various systems that it's governed by. And it just seems to me that Tolentino's book, from what I've read of it so far, Laura, and I've read the four essays that you recommended to us for this segment, I'm definitely going to finish it. It seems that she grapples with that Adequately, in fact, that might be considered the obsessive question of the book is, you know, how how to escape the prison of oneself in the age of the Internet. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote that she was a classic personal essayist, the word essay means to attempt. You know, she's not a polemicist. She doesn't have an answer. She's just exploring her own experience with these things. And I You know, that's almost like the definition of what she's doing. And the complaint in the review seems to be with that, with the very idea of doing that, that it's not adequate to deal with whatever terrible problem it is that, that these subjects present. The Gia Tolentino book, of course, is Trick Mirror. And uh, we'll post a link to the review on our show page. Uh, Laura, thanks as always. Total pleasure. Always a pleasure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? My endorsement is extremely basic. (laughs) It's just to listen to Gia Tolentino's reading of her own book, Trick Mirror, that we talked about in that segment with Laura Miller. Since that wasn't really properly a book club book review segment, but more talking about the reception of the book and the treatment of young women essayists in general, um, I just recommend people go to the book. It's always fun to hear a book, especially a memoir-style book, read in the voice of the person who wrote it. And uh, Gia's style of writing, as you know if you read her in The New Yorker, is really vernacular, very spoken. And so it really feels like sort of hearing a a series of nine different talks, you know, just personal talks by somebody about their experience on the internet, in life, and in the world. And uh, it's been a lot of fun listening to it. I'm still in the midst of it. So go on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks and download Gia reading her own book, Trick Mirror. Oh, here, here. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, In the spirit of smart young women thinking about the world and reflecting on it using both their brains and their personal experience, I would like to recommend one of the gnarliest and most interesting and think-aboutable books I've read in such a long time, which is the book How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which I will confess that I bought knowing nothing about it on the mere strength of its arresting title and cover. Um, So kudos to the book marketers who got me to pick up a brief tome of you know, philosophy, Luddism, and bird watching, just by making a picking a good title and and making a lush decorated cover. It's like a gorgeous pink 
peaceful looking flowers and roses with the, those words stitched through them. As our listeners know, I love to reflexively critique a Luddite argument, love to find a technology skeptic or hater and skepticize them. Uh, and this is such a smart anti-technology book. I don't even know, maybe part of why I find it smart is that it doesn't seem instinctively anti-technology. It's just thinking seriously about the impact of technology on our lived experience. Possibly, I just think it's smart because it uses bird watching as the way to make you think about the value of moving away from technology. And I find that more persuasive than other tactics. But anyway, this book is so worth your time. I really think it's an interesting text about how we live now. I would actually love to for you guys to both read it and if you haven't already and for us to discuss it on the show. Like it, it touches on so many issues that we've touched on here over the years. You know, it's it's probably a good book to like bring with you for a weekend away and read in a couple big gulps because it, it it's a thinky book. You got to kind of hold some ideas in your head. I read a bunch of it over vacation and then I've been reading the last, you know, 40 pages in dribs and drabs before bed at night. And it's, it's less good in that context. But um Really love it. Really interesting. It's an anti-tech book that has made a pro-tech person think hard about her relationship to technology. So recommend. Great. I read it and I loved it too. And uh, and agree that I, upon hearing about it, and it was so well-reviewed when it came out, I was very curious about it. But I also sort of thought, how can this be anything else except the argument we've read so many times about my brain, my brain is so crammed. I must purify, right? I mean, but there's not, as you say, there's not a simple equation of tech with bad and pure brain off tech with good in her in her writing it's much more complex than that and uh, it's a wonderful book i'd love for the three of us to talk about it oh my gosh yes please uh all right so a listener um wrote in to point out that there's an amazing cover of the kate bush song that i endorsed i think last week hounds of love by a uh, i think it's a kind of a punk uh cover it is terrific the band is the future heads the song is hounds of love check it out it's very very fun and then i don't believe i probably have not done this before because i'm only just getting into them now um but the ian rankin novels uh, featuring Inspector Rebus. As a person who's kind of guiltily made his way through the Jack Reacher novels, you know, as they kind of fall into my lap over the years at various beach houses and in airports and stuff, I'm looking for a new thrill. And um, the uh, Rankin is a Scottish writer. I think he's from Edinburgh, but he's certainly associated with that city. And they're just these, they're called tartan noirs. Probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with them, but they're, you know, dripping in alcohol, darkness and ill spilt blood. And they're just beautifully written. He started out as a genre novelist and then someone gave him a great piece of advice, which was, you know, does John Bookin, the great, you know, the uh, Irish uh, novelist, did he think of himself as a genre novel? Like, what is this? distinction between genre and literary you know write something commercial and just do it well you know and he did they're they're they're, so far my experience of them is they're amazing this is mostly a call for readers who've really enjoyed them to tell me which ones to uh continue with after the first one i'm reading now um mortal causes which so far i love and uh anyway that's it the ian rankin inspector rebus novels thank you julia thank you and dana thanks a lot that was fun it was a pleasure You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamyn Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Julia Turner and uh, Dana Stevens. And of course, Laura Miller. I'm Stephen Metcalf. 
Thank you so much for joining us. We had fun and we will see you again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.